both of them stopped actually, so you probably missed like most of that conversation. The laptop, so <laughs> green light means it's good. Oh, okay, you can see that. I was trying to like hit the touch <coughs> point with them. This one's might be dead. Do you need? Oh, a, you have to open it closer. That's your parking. I saw you parked out there. You got something? Uh, I, see the, I just see the uh, guy there. Orchi, are you taking care of Jim's parking as well? No, mine's fine. I'm in a two-hour. Oh, okay. I was worried about. I just saw the guy, and I was thinking about Ian's vehicle. So. Okay. Thank you. Parking here is three and a half times cheaper than a ticket in Philadelphia. Can I, can I talk to you about something that I have a real bone of contention with? I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's your generation or the generation before you. They started using times to represent things that are smaller, whereas we always work with fractions. So when something is a third, a third of the cost. But what if it's three, three and a half times? times. You want me to say a seventh or no, two? What would Whoever it be? says three and a half. <laughs> you say things are two times cheaper, ten times cheaper. No, it's a tenth of the cost. I have these things that annoy me. People use the word literally way too often. It drives me crazy. And the um, the figurative use of yeah, the, yeah. the times smaller thing. That one bothers me too, literally using that improperly. Because it's the words have such specific meanings sometimes, especially that one. Yeah. And to use it not literally is it's Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. about it. Drives it yeah. me nuts. Anyway, so there you go. That's so what were we talking about? Something being uh, it's funny for you to say that with the skater spirit, though, because I think a lot of the people who use literally like that are, some of them, there's a fraction of them that are intelligent enough to, to know that it's improper and use it anyway just to be rebellious. I think they're yes. trying to sound smarter than they actually are, or they're trying to fill the room with their own voice so they don't get interrupted. That's why people are literally incorrect. <laughs> Yesterday, during the election coverage, some newscaster said, I was literally shocked by this. I was like, oh man, I hope somebody goes and tases them right now. <laughs> was it one of you who mentioned uh, when you see LOL in a statement or comment or something? Not me. Not me. No. Nope. Nope. I don't know. Similar, along Irritated the same lines. Or? Yeah, to, if you see a comment that ends in LOL, just like instantly not taken seriously. Yeah. I have a, actually all of the like abbreviations, like when grown men use the letter U instead of Y or U. Be an adult. Two extra letters, come on. I don't know if this is a sign or not of the future, but I have a 12-year-old brother who texts immaculate grammar. He just yeah. writes every word out completely. I think it might be because with his generation, they had a full keypad. So like my first cell phone was a flip phone and I had to text by like pressing the buttons four yeah. times. So there's huge added benefit to just writing you instead of Y-O-U. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, Maybe. That you're, you're not saying your brother's so got integrity. You're saying he's got the tools he needs to, uh, yeah. to do the job. Maybe one, maybe the other. I think basically we just need to collectively agree and never let your generation ever have any roles in leadership and just go to the next <laughs> But we're the ones who really saw the transformation from pre-internet to post-internet and like regular phone. I don't know. I ran a BBS yeah, in the 90s. I, I think you guys are <laughs> the first the real internet generation. Yeah. We were the ones that had it inserted into our lives. You saw it before any of the really, uh, like you didn't grow up with a home computer. Sure we did. I did too. Yeah. Did. The Tandy 1000. Yeah. yeah. And the Commodore's 20, what? Commodore Big 20 actually. Yeah. yeah. So we had also Tandy 1000. Yeah. Which was an Apple IIe clone, right? It wasn't actually an IBM. 
no, it wasn't IBM. It was like IBM Cloud. Was it IBM Cloud? Whatever. We, Tandy was IBM. we got to see the internet show up on our lives. Like yeah. it wasn't something that we were born into. So, yeah. um, but that doesn't mean that, that we don't think that like your generation is going to have some great contributions for sure. I mean, either fortunately <laughs> or unfortunately, they already have. <laughs> My gen, the millennial generation. That's Zuckerberg. That's Instagram founder. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, Snapchat. A lot of the biggest uh, new companies are from leaders from my yeah. millennial generation, unfortunately, or fortunately. The thing, yeah. a lot, there's a lot of dispute against the things they're doing. I guess uh, the Social Dilemma is a popular movie right now. Mm -hmm. um, how does 3D printed construction fit into the big tech world? Yeah, that remains well, to be seen. There's, I, think, I think that the awesome. most exciting part right now is obviously the BIM. And everybody talks about Revit, the Autodesk uh, version of BIM, but there's a lot of startup companies out there that are coming up with some really cool stuff. And, I mean, we are obviously involved in big tech from the standpoint that we can't operate any of our machinery without the evolution of everything that goes on in computer science. But the, um, the notion that somehow or other, things that you make in the field will instantly, instantaneously be translated back into the computer model is a really exciting time for construction. Mm -hmm. I think 3D printing might actually be the leader in that technology. I think that we're going to have our sensory arrays on our robots that are actually teaching uh, the rest of the people on a project what the, the actual real world um, model should look like. And so the BIM will be updated to represent uh, empirical values that we're getting from, from our sensory array. So I love how you got through all of that without using the word data, which is really the like big data is what kind of the, what it's getting at, but it's it's definitely unique to construction because the level of data and like specifics on how much concrete was flowing out of the machine, you can get like a number in meters if you want. Mm -hmm. And so to have that kind of accountability throughout the project is something kind of new that it's bringing yeah. to the table. Big data is only as good as the things that are willing to actually analyze that data and utilize give it, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, utilize it. So, you know, for that example of how much concrete's gone through the machine, that actually may or not actually relevant to anybody who's downstream who's being affected by that. But should it be that a bead width that was targeted to be at 59 millimeters is now 63 millimeters, and your plumbing holes that were going to be here now need to be offset by all of that, that would be usable data that would actually be of value to them. So you don't want to like overload your BIMs with a bunch of information that um, is useless. So yeah, right, useless. Will not affect change. What's up? Yeah. Where is your car? No, no, my car doesn't need it. I'm in two hours. Sorry. Oh, I got to take oh, it. Oh, we got one. Your car? My car, I think, is next to Ian's, but it should have two hours from when I got here on it. So okay. one, one thing I saw. Let's take it on your paycheck. <laughs> talking about, uh, well, tickets here are pretty cheap. I've, I've gone with the ticket route instead of the paying route, and they're kind of cheap. Um, I've seen where uh, some of these projects at Spearhead, the... Uh, the entire project is based on the concrete. I mean, everything's built on the concrete, footings, foundations, or whatever. And one of the things we would do is we would send somebody to the site to go recon and see exactly what happened after the concrete was poured. And never, ever has it ever been exactly to the design which the rest of the project is based on. So there's an evaluation, there's recording, and then uh, there's an adjustment. The as-built. Yes, the as-built. The as-built is definitely used. Adjust for the future uh, 
traits that have to come in and work with it. So it's an interesting the aspect. Sooner, the sooner you do it, the better off you are. A lot of people don't understand that aspect of construction, maybe similarly to those who don't get involved with the scheduling, is the finished product is almost never the same as the design. So a lot of companies that have a big project going on will get a separate set of papers, architectural papers for the as-built, as opposed to the yeah. design. That's just a crazy thing that uh, I think people that aren't accustomed to it maybe would be a little mind-blown that you don't always get kind of what you're buying. Well, the tougher part of it is procurement. So there will be people who have long lead items for the elements they need to go next in the line and you know, say that the entire concrete slab is you know, 1% undersized, you may have a whole bunch of elements that are actually yeah. too long. And someone's going to have to go back and cut all those things because there's no way that they could have gone back fast enough in the procurement chain to reorder the size before yeah. you know, the, uh, the elements yeah. would have needed to ship by. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly the type of uh, re the use of the reconnaissance of, of going and measuring it so that you can get the notice to everybody as soon as you can. That's why they were, they were so good at project managing, management let everybody know what was going on with the, with the adjustments as the project proceeded. You know, even though you focus on 3D printing, Spirit Timberworks is a phenomenal digital manufacturing for construction industry. Maybe we can try to secure you a quick visit with them. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Where are they located? Here. Halfway to our site. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah that would be great. Mm -hmm. Will they See have a manufacturing facility where they're doing automated yeah. cutting? And yeah. They do. Yeah. Big, beautiful. Yeah, I'd like to just kind of segue into other automation construction stuff. I would definitely pursue that kind of thing. I want to try to stay a little bit focused on automated on 3D printing for yeah. um, just until I, maybe this is an unrealistic goal, but just until I reach every company. Yeah. Um, they're growing and there's more yeah. of them constantly, but. You can film an interview and like release it in months. Yeah, yeah, yeah just, just somehow to show the interface between 3D, print, 3D printed uh, because we are going to collaborate with them as much as possible. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, we already recognize there's no point in 3D printing a, a concrete truss. Right? Yeah. Even though we can. We have the technology. We know the know-how to make a concrete truss. Yeah. Why would we? From a design perspective, too, I think since you're already using concrete for the 3D printing, it's nicer to use some wood or other materials. Yeah. Well, the hybrid approach makes is, medium is, is nice. absolutely the way to go, I think, mm -hmm. at this point right now. Mm -hmm. All the materials have different. Has your wife given any input to the design of the house you plan on printing? Absolutely. We talk about it often. Um, not so much the technical details, but more about the space and yeah. what we need in the house and you know, general design. I've heard that, and this is another example of Ian, you might not like, of me kind of just spitting facts out, but <laughs> I heard that women are responsible for 80% of the buying decision for, um, for homes. So, don't tell my wife that I showed it to her on Google Earth. <laughs> and so it's important, I guess, that if 3D printed homes are going to become a big product with a wide market reach, that it's something that women find appealing. And uh, I guess maybe, I hope I'm not being sexist in saying that like cold hard concrete generally doesn't have a huge female appeal. but. I guess what are the, her what are some of the preferences that she stated that she would like to see in a house? Well, definitely that it would be hybrid. Definitely we want to break it. It's interesting. She mentioned that wood is essential. 
or something softer to contrast the, the content. For sure, it's a big going to be a big part of it. It's also economics too, right? We don't want to necessarily print everything because it's not really it doesn't make a lot of financial sense to, to, you know, to do that. So a hybrid approach. Insulation's a big deal. Um, maintenance of the structure <laughs> afterwards. Um, I guess the common things. Um, my uh, my partner's actually a, a carpenter, a red seal carpenter. So she's got a lot of really uh, useful insight. What's a red seal? Uh, carpenter, that would be a journeyman. A journeyman here. It's Canadian. Canadian lingo. Red Seal must be something to do with the certification process because you can have a Red Seal chef, um, carpenter, uh, I think it would be more trades related rather than just step up and apprentice. I'm going to run to the restroom again. Yeah, yeah. It's a great This went down the wrong place. A lot of topics to cover here. And one more beer each. I feel like there's infinite topics. I could talk about this with you guys for like eight hours if we, if we ended up doing that. Yeah, it's so hard to know whether or not these conversations feel contrived or not. It's not like we've been prepared for them, but well, that's what I like about Cameras cause people to behave differently. You know, like you, you're conscientious of perhaps maybe someone coming back on you and saying, hey, yeah. you guys are recording and you say this. Yeah, so it's not like, recording right now, really, yeah. except for from there. So I kind of feel a little bit guarded. I, feel like yep. I don't want to have it seem like our answers are prepared. It's mean, just stuff that we thought about. Your answers aren't prepared. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's well, objectives and things that yeah. you know, we're trying to achieve in business and stuff that we don't really want to, like, poo-poo on. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't want to, like... You don't want to broadcast anger. You don't yeah. want to broadcast, like... Like, for sure, we've seen things in the industry that we think is pathetic. Can't talk about any of that without necessarily ruffling feathers of people who yeah, might, might be your allies in the future. It's not so really a gentleman's like, activity to uh, no. put people down or anything like that either, right? No, so, it's really funny because Jim and I actually had, I'd say, almost like a, a kind of a mini falling out a long time ago because when we were designing these skateboards back in the day, there was this one particular truck manufacturer. Trucks were like the Acto. Yeah, the I used to skate. Okay, anyway, so he, he was making an, uh, an inferior product with dimensions that were not like normal dimensions. And so we had to make our boards that wanted to use those trucks, because it was the number one selling truck at the time, have intentionally uh, misdrilled holes so that when people bought those trucks and put them on our boards, they would mount perfectly. Yeah. And I went publicly, and I made kind of like a, a sort of like a, this guy and his crap, and I hope somebody dethrones him or whatever. And he was like, what? He wrote the article. I wrote the article. Yeah, it wasn't an article. Like it, yeah, everything was, was um, PHP uh, yeah. databases back then. These, yeah. these online forums where yeah. you, know, you could kind of track a bunch of different conversations at once. And they're public. A lot of them were anonymous. Um, yeah. I wasn't anonymous in this one. Right? So I made this kind of like kind of public accusation. This guy's stuff this is guy, garbage. He shouldn't be. He couldn't get one. his holes lined up. His whole his whole spacing was irregular. Yeah. yeah. It was like why? You know, just make a product that makes people's stuff work. You know, so yeah. wasn't a huge fault. Like, no, 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 but it was just. But it was talking about, about how like you can yeah. have like this relationship with the public that can very easily go down a path that you didn't think it was going to go yeah. down, 
when you when I thought my intention was like, hey, let's maybe if we say let's this out loud, <laughs> he'll actually make a better product, and our customers will have something they even appreciate more because we weren't doing it. So, but beyond that, what Jim did is he went and started his own truck company, he made the best trucks on the planet for years, <laughs> and not just dethroned this guy, but completely, um, yeah, <laughs> completely changed what people expected. Uh, skateboard truck to be able to do. So you're talking about how the quality of equipment was. Like he moved it from here to, to here from. I moved it from cast to machine. Yeah. So it wasn't about holes anymore. It was about everything. Yeah, actually, I kind of felt bad after the last one that I didn't offer more editing because that was kind of the one that sort of pushed the agenda to like use some mixed footage. And you guys did all around. the editing. What do you mean? Well, but it was it was meant. I told her just do a rough cut. So it was his thing. Don't try to like. Like that was perfect, micromanage though. what the, the thing should look like. Just get it so it all lines up, and then he'll, he can do what he wants with it. You know? I didn't do anything. Yeah, and it was pretty obvious afterwards that when you go straight to us, like, can you hear? Us? <laughs> Even the Zoom calls I do, yeah. podcast episodes, sometimes yeah. it'll start like, can you hear me? Yeah. Your camera's not on. Yeah, it's people. People use that. They're used to it, right? Man. But, At a but, certain level, too, it's a shield from people who aren't that interested, mm -hmm. somebody who's maybe just has surface level intrigue or, um, I don't know, it forces it to only be accessible to those who are really interested and willing to sift through the rough yep. cut stuff and get the gems. Because I really think there are, in a lot of the podcast episode and the one I did with you guys especially too, you talk about a lot of stuff that's kind of like, a, it's almost like a textbook of knowledge and so, I don't know, it, to some level it just wouldn't be fair to just give all your best secrets out at the surface level. Mm -hmm. Like, if people are really interested, they kind of have to dive in and get the details. Makes sense. Well, the nice oh. thing about this industry is that secrets today are not secrets tomorrow. You know, there's a lot of new stuff to learn yeah. uh, in the days and weeks and years coming ahead. And there's marketing value in exposing some of them. But there is an old, old expression that says, loose lips. Ships. We, we're definitely known for having loose lips, so hopefully we're not like that. <laughs> like <thinking> ships, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I don't think so. I don't think we are. I think I think there's so much we're chasing right now, and so much innovation yeah. to pursue that it's 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 old news uh, almost as it happens. There's different schools of thought with that. Yeah, a lot of the challenges we're facing, we couldn't even get into them in any depth in this kind of format anyway. Even when we're having our own tech meetings, like someone has to take over the screen and put some calculations up or put some some, some diagrams text, up yeah. so that we can all kind of be on the same page. It doesn't work in sort of just like a conversation format. So, yeah. But and we do. We have, we have a weekly tech meeting. We have a weekly sales meeting. We have a weekly operations meeting where the whole staff, no matter what time zone they're in, we all have to. So sometimes Jim and I yeah, are getting up at like five in the morning so yeah. that we can uh, uh, do these meetings. Yeah. But yeah, we're surrounded. really try out like kind of abstract techniques for some yeah. of the stuff we want to do. Whether it's the mechanical side of things, the print strategy, or whether it's about even just like our business organization. You know, we're, we're trying different things out so yeah. we can kind of appeal to kind of a new unknown market that, yeah. yeah. It's there waiting for us, but it's, it doesn't look like anything anyone's ever seen before. So we have to keep adapting our, our self-image so that we can actually fit into the 
A lot of the stuff we've talked about kind of revolves around the issues in the existing construction industry. It really does seem so ripe for change. That's like, I guess, it substantiates a lot of the what you're saying now about how it's so exciting and there's so much opportunity. Um, there's so many different routes you guys could take in the next five to ten years, and there's it's great that you kind of stayed open to different concepts. What do you think the most important catalyst would be to for your spent to additive manufacturing, but also the cricket construction industry as a whole. Is there some kind of? I think it's acceptance by the construction industry, by the I don't know, yeah, so financial industry, it. everybody. Yeah. They're only going to accept us when we knock it out of the park. Yeah. So they're going to need to see an example. For example, it's, it's not a chicken and egg thing. There really does need to be some amazing things done before the acceptance is going to be, you know, widespread or mainstream. Right now it's very much early adopters and it's a space dominated by exploratory endeavors to some degree. Yeah, I think even we talked about early adoption in the original podcast. I think we're actually pre-adoption because when we were talking about it before, I think we were kind of really like self-analyzing and we were part of the bigger 3D printing construction industry. Yeah. But it is so nothing compared to the construction industry. You're very right about that. And it's kind of like like when Thomas Edison knew that he could heat up a wire and make a light from a bulb but still needed to make a, like a hundred different models till one was lasting or sustainable, whatever. It's almost in that phase where like the first edition's been made and yeah. just figuring out how to fine tune it and get to that fine product. Yeah. Well it's also all the minds out there too, right? Because there's a small number of people working industry and mm -hmm. there's brilliant people all over the yeah. place. So once they start to focus on this stuff, that's when I think things are really going to It's kind of cool because it's a super small circle, but we kind of can tell that we're surrounded by future billionaires. Like there's so much growth potential in this industry and so we're hanging out with these guys in these chat forums or because there hasn't been very much in, in actual uh, um, in-person symposiums. So people that we're seeing, you know, these, these guys are like first year grads or undergrads mm -hmm. and they're developing techniques for inserting RF into wet uh, 3D printed concrete where, and this guy is going to be, he's, just he's going to be running his own billion dollar company in like five or ten years from now and there's like a whole sea of potential of these guys out there and it's kind of cool because it is pre-adoption, it's not early adoption, it's really like the, the, the guys who are jumping in now are going to be having a major influence on how this industry looks in a few years. I get that same feeling when I'm doing these podcasts. I feel like I'm talking to future billionaires and like that's really a big part of my motivation for doing these is because I think that down the line when this industry takes off it's going to be so cool to have an insight into kind of where people's minds were in the beginning and like what people were thinking about before it really took off in the pre-adoption phase mm -hmm. and it's such an exciting like place to be in right now. It's like the first Tesla Roadster, or like the first light bulb from the Edison. Yeah. Um, I really hope that uh, that I can keep developing like a catalog of all the of what's happening, and like the, mm -hmm. hopefully I can kind of document the process. As it's, you were talking earlier about like a singularity point, point like something like that. Event horizon. I think the event horizon <laughs> is when you can make a single family home cheaper 3D printed than uh, a regular home anywhere in, I guess, the world, potentially. It's easy for me to just say America, but there's a lot more companies 
or there's a lot more countries to benefit uh, from this tax yeah. just America. Well, we already know that that can be done. It's just would that cost be something you would want to own or live in? That's the part we have to cross. Yeah, more bit higher value. It seems so inevitable. Like, well, there's nothing specifically that would stop that goal. The growth, yeah. No, there's just too much. Everything's going in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. All like it's everything's all lining up for it to happen. So the velocity is increasing, and maybe even the acceleration is increasing too, as more companies kind of like every time someone buys a printer, that's a whole nother group that's going to be devoted to making designs and testing prints in a different region. Yeah, yeah. it's like everything that has exponential growth, it's almost impossible to imagine like when you're at like the, the one the or the two. Yeah. You ever remember that thing where someone offers you, you know, um, a penny? Like you have to, they'll give you like a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, but you gotta give them a penny today and then tomorrow two pennies and the next day four pennies. Everybody gets duped in on that one because they don't understand what exponential growth is. But by the 30th day, it's like... Pennies a billion dollars. Yeah. If you double a penny every day for 30 days, it's like a billion dollars at the end of it. Yeah. Or like a trillion or some crazy amount. I don't know about 30 days, but... You have to go a little longer. Let me grab my calculator. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're two, right. It's two to the power of 30, right? So. Two it to the power of 30 minus one. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just do 0 0.01 times 2. Let's do this calculation. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There's a function on your calculator to do that 16, for you. 17, 18, 19, 20. 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. Not even close to a No, 10,000. You got 10 million, 10 million, 10 million pennies. pennies. No, 10 million dollars because I put in 0 0.01 to start. Oh, okay. So now. Six, seven. So it takes seven, 37, 37 days, days. <laughs> from a penny that doubles every day. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that this technology is doubling every day, but it's definitely doubled in. Um, I would say there's probably twice as much printed concrete this year as there was last year, and maybe twice as much the year before that. Is that so rough that's, estimate? Honestly, that's crazy. Number. I'd say I more than no idea. Yeah. more. Yeah. I'd say there's more than double. There is obviously so there's this this elephant in the room and that's Winsun, and they are operating on a scale that's not like all the other companies, but it's a obviously a government funded operation that has a very large uh, resource set that allows them to do a lot of experimentation. Um, they focused on prefab only, so that's going to make it so that they're going to offer a certain uh, knowledge base to the in industry as a whole. But um, yeah, they've done I think. When I went and met um, Hendrik from Cobot the first time, he told me there was, I think, 66 3D printed buildings in the world at that time, and um, 60 of them, or 59 of them, were in China. So That, that momentum probably hasn't slowed down. No, I mean, didn't they just like print like a retaining wall for an, uh, an ocean beach? Yeah, that's a cool project. So. Yeah. I believe Cobot did a similar project in Florida. Well, I haven't seen that yet. The applications have not even, like, they haven't even been imagined yet. It's like a tip of the iceberg kind of thing. Yeah, but it's like the tip of an iceberg compared to Greenland. Right? 
There's a bunch of ice that hasn't even fallen into the ocean to turn into icebergs yet. So, no, it's definitely, we're on the cusp of something huge here. A true event horizon. Let's go to the back and podcast. <laughs> you just call it the lamest event horizon ever. It doesn't seem lame to me because construction is like the three biggest industries. It's like the construction equipment, construction, construction materials, construction labor, um, independently are like three of the biggest industries. So it's a huge, yeah, it it's is. a huge challenge and yeah. battle. I really am. Uh, I think a lot about when it will become a threat to the existing construction methods. And right now, you don't see anyone really fighting hard against printed construction because it's it's not threatening to them yet. But once it starts replacing yeah. traditional techniques, that's when I think we'll see some pushback. What do you think that might look like? Well, it kind of reminds me of when um, I was learning CAD in the 90s. And I saw a lot of architects and designers and stuff still working in paper. And the light board, the light table? Yeah, with their, you know, the, I should, I should really know the names of these things, but the, the drafting table, right? Yeah. With um, compasses and uh, squares and things like that. So, I mean, I saw, I, I even had to do uh, a course for DCIT, the prerequisite um, for CAD, which I ended up just dropping out learning way faster on my own than mm -hmm. in the school, but I had to do drafting and, uh, you know, I see a lot of the people that are, I don't see a lot of people drafting with paper anymore and uh, they've had to adapt or drop out. So I don't know what's going to happen with the construction industry, but I think we're going to see the same thing. They're either going to adapt or they're going to have some kind of um, prestige as a designer or whatever that they're still I imagine it'll be something um, truly epic, like an epic battle of the old system versus the new system. At some point, there should be some um, climax of the. Yeah. Well, the consumer is going to decide, right? Who's going to hire who? Are you going to hire the guy who's using it or not using it? And, um, there's going to be a lot of cases where people will continue to use the old style. Construction is one of the places where the consumer usually doesn't get to decide, though. I well, mean, I mean, uh, when I say consumer, I mean you know, whoever's paying the bill for the, for the projects. It could be governments, it could be... That's true. Uh, and especially or, if the 3D printed house is going to look much different than a regularly built house, the consumer will have a lot more say in that situation. But traditionally, it's been aluminum framing versus studs, versus wood studs. Yeah. And that's like a decision that most 90% of consumers don't really... Developers, contractors, building code. Building code will be a big influence. Yeah. If there's, I guess something I was kind of bringing up how I think there might one day be a climax of the battle between the traditional construction methods and the new automation construction methods. If that were to happen, where do you think it might manifest? I don't think the traditional guys will even notice it happen. There'll really? just be a bunch of guys running around on their shop floor with laptops. And I don't understand what any of these kids are doing. <laughs> they, they won't see it coming. They really won't. But they already have so many structured systems like unions to be able to uh, collect their resources and uh, collaboratively communicate a message. So the ability to do that 
leads me to think that some kind of conflict is inevitable. I don't know. I they, think I well, think it's creep. I think it'll be technology creep. I don't think that there'll be like a bunch of robots banging at the door saying, Let us in, we have equal rights to the to laborers. Yeah. You know, it's just gonna be that they're just gonna start showing up in different places and people will have to learn to adapt to, you know, these new things that are showing up. Um, you do definitely hear some anti-roboticization um, rhetoric from unions, for example, or um, labor. Uh, ministries responsible for labor tend to throw some like unresearched statistics out there about how, how automation is um, affecting you know the ability to earn in their economies. Not many economists but have there's not a lot of science behind it. all these claims, right? It's they they are there's like a fear been introduced into the conversation that isn't backed by fact and they haven't really been able to find much evidence of how anything from the um, automation industry has really had a massive detrimental effect on people's economic capabilities for any you know, regional or even um, uh, national economies. The biggest issue that people have with uh, ability to earn has been attrition, skill set attrition, always. You know, uh, find a good mason these days is Finding gold in rivers has been getting panned for hundreds, and if not thousands, of years. Like the stuff's going away. There's very little of it left. You know, people don't want to have uh, a ten-year learning cycle to have a skill set that you know makes them in high-earning category. They want to get there quickly. So nobody wants to become a cold chiseler of, of rocks for doing fireplaces. And, I mean, there's some. That's, I shouldn't say no one. That's a finite term. But the, the notion that people are willing to spend the time to become that skilled at something isn't anywhere near as appealing as you know becoming a, a YouTuber or an Instagram model, where all of a sudden you know a few lucky um, posts get you into a higher earning position. That to me is uh, kind of a shame because it becomes like a really desirable thing. It's almost like the same thing that, you know, kids growing up in the 70s and the 80s in Canada were constantly being told, hey, if you could join the NHL, man, life is going to be a breeze. It's had so many people jumping into hockey programs and, you know, hockey dads and hockey moms started showing up and going up to um, refs and coaches and yelling and screaming at them because somehow or other they're getting away with their kid's chance of becoming a millionaire a hockey player. Sure. That's kind of going through like another phase right now of people trying to become internet stars. I'm glad, I'm glad we finally brought it back to what's important, Canada. Hockey, <laughs> <laughs> but it never was to us, right? Like we, yeah. we stepped aside from that. You know, I grew up in a hockey town for sure. Like, you know, there was a huge push. You know, and their most of their dads were union workers. They either working at the, the mine or they were working at the pulp mill, and they were. They were making great money. Like some of the wealthiest families in all of North America came from my hometown. You know, not like super rich, but like the average earning of the community was quite high because we had these unions that were making good wages, these guys, but it wasn't good enough. It's like, no, you got to go to the NHL and you got to sign on, and, and that was college. That was, that college. was university. Go to the yeah. NHL, try to make it there. Yeah, there's definitely a huge value in people kind of like put their head down for 10 years and really become experts in their niche because then there's no 
if you become a certain level of expert, then you don't have any competition if you truly know your field better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's lost on people these days, or it's just kind of lost on people from a labor perspective, and they don't want to gain those skills in a manual industry or whatever the issue is for that. Um, I think people use the word labor as a dirty word, you know? Like people, economists talk about it, but when they talk about labor in, in an economic standpoint, they're always faceless, or they are from some um, developing economy that's migrated to our countries to be able to take the jobs that the people here don't want to do. But, you know, labor is actually something that can be totally embraced by people as being a uh, good thing. So it's actually helping automation um, have more of a role because people are being taught at a young age through like almost indoctrination that there's something wrong with doing labor. So the workforce, you talked about earlier, the workforce is just not going to be there anymore. It has nothing to do with uh, robots pushing people out of the workforce. It's somewhere in the, in the lexicon or our pop culture, we've been telling people that labor is something that is for the unfortunate or the people who didn't make the right decisions and now they have to um, suffer through their labor, right? I'm hearing my career counselor in high school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're gonna work at a gas station the rest of your life, Jim. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't feel that way. Anyway. But, but it started true. early, yeah. It's it true. Is, yeah. And it's kind of, kind of a shame because some of the finest things that we have to appreciate in this world come from really high-skilled labor. Guys who did learn how to hold a cold chisel and carve a rock so that it can be perfectly placed into a, a fireplace so that you can have you know, just like uh, exactly the, um, the, the facade you wanted to build. So. It's easy for me to think that that's a great career path for people and at the same time believe that automation and construction will take over because automation isn't going to take over those kind of like handmade artisan jobs because those already are a premium product. I don't know if this is a true story, but this is something my dad told me when I was quite young. Um, and this was when uh, robotics was starting to find its way into the, um, the assembly lines at Ford and Toyota and these places. And that there was um, the biggest challenge in robotics, six axis robotics specifically, was spray painting lacquer on the cars. And what they did is they, the development of the six axis robot was because they had some guy who was the best painter and all of his motions were like hitting the struts and like getting the finish nice and, and getting the uh, interior of the car rust treated properly. And there was just this guy who just like had the best motions, but he was aging and they didn't have anyone who was anywhere near as good as him. So they went down and did a motion control study on him. I'm assuming this happened at a Toyota factory because Fanuc is a, a Japanese robotic um, maker of six axis robots. So they far away were like the number one six axis robot. Um, and they basically just analyzed this old guy's movements for months and made sure that they developed a machine that could replicate exactly what he was doing with his arm. And that's where they came six, the six-axis robot was developed. That's a beautiful example. Now, I've never fact-checked this. This comes from my old man. He probably told me the story in the 80s. And somebody can hopefully fix that story and tell me where it actually comes from. But it, it kind of lines up with what we're kind of talking about, how the skill set that is going away doesn't have to go away if we can get the robots to do it for us. 
the high school job counselor is one of the biggest conundrums in my mind because you take a person who has a job, but there's there's no way that was the job they wanted when they were like <laughs> growing up or going to school. I don't think I don't think anybody is like I want to be a job counselor. And then you take somebody who already doesn't have the path they were pursuing, and you have them advise everybody on what to do. It's like that's what I never thought of. That's hilarious. You have the guy. I mean, you want to learn from somebody who's doing something they like that you want to do or that they wanted to do at least. Yeah. Uh, so to have somebody there's, who's maybe salty. There's some good advice for people who are doing what they don't want to do. It's like, hey, don't follow my footsteps. I'll tell you right now, this does not end well if you keep on this path. That was probably actually something I did take from him, was that what I was doing was not necessarily a good path, but his conclusion was all wrong, that's for sure. But his, uh, his assessment of the current situation may have been motivated. Look how crazy! <laughs> looking back, look how much crazy! Look how crazy that the short history of our own lifetimes has been. Can you imagine being in a role where you're supposed to advise people on what decisions to make for the future that we have no idea what we're doing? How many of them said you're never going to carry a calculator in your pocket? They all said that. Yeah. Yeah, but I happen to prefer hanging around with people who are okay with mental mathematics than people who uh, will just sit there and stunned until somebody pulls their calculator out. <laughs> I love mental mathematics, but multiplying a penny 37 times, I'll pull the calculator out for yeah. Yeah. What do you think the... Uh, so, with all the automation and efficiencies that we've realized recently, like you said, this has been like one of the most transformative times in, in history. So, what will be lost to that? That's a good question. Really? Towards the well, end, we're two hours in, so very few people will hear your answer. Not a lot of pressure. Uh, attachment. I think people will be way less attached to their work in the future. I already know I am. When, when we were doing things by hand, woodworking, and then when we were doing things with the CNC woodworking, my attachment to that piece diminished. Whatever. I mean, we shouldn't really have a whole lot of intrinsic love for inanimate objects anyway. But, you know, in being in love with your craft isn't a, a detrimental characteristic. That's a good thing. Uh, I would say maybe the leisure time is what's going to disappear where there's an expectation to produce because it's easier or available, you know, you're going to maybe going to be looking down upon uh, leisure time for the, or, or production for the purpose of enjoyment. Yeah. Because there's something yeah. productive. It's kind of along the same, same sort of lines, yeah. yeah. Although, I'm going to play complete devil's advocate on that one. I actually have this sort of utopian view that at some point, um, everything already exists that's necessary because robots are making it for us, and all we can do is hang out on the beach and surf. Yeah. Snowboarding. Okay. The whole plan. Yeah, yeah, like no other plan. Actually I mean, I'm thinking more in terms of it. during that transition when the robots are doing or learning yeah. to do all these things for us, and we've got no excuses yeah. to produce. It's going to suck for the artists because every single person on the planet will realize they're also an artist. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. we we talked about uh, ideal um, companies or clients or whatever, but one thing we didn't mention was artisans, and they are a huge component to what we're doing as well, right? 
Well, because it, it brings up the notion that what I'm saying, I think everybody is actually an artist. And I'm going to give you an, an exact example of that. So when I started my first skateboard business, I was in high school, and I was an absolutely horrible um, graphics designer with a pen and paper. And so I would have to like raise a few bucks to pay my buddies who were good at doing art so that I could put their graphics on the shirts or on the skateboards or whatever. And then along came this little software from Ottawa called Corel Draw. It allowed me to use a mouse to draw my graphics, and all of a sudden, I didn't need the artist anymore. Because I still had this vision in my mind of what I wanted to see represented on my products, but I didn't have the actual dexterity to make it happen. But when you can go in and you can use digital manufacturing to like make what your vision is, you're actually opening up the door for people who didn't think they were artists to become artists. And so I have probably like over a thousand different images that I've created for t-shirts and skateboards over the last like 30 years that wouldn't have existed had I not had access to some sort of computer-aided design. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally resonate with that too because for the same reason. I could never draw very well. You know, I could get a idea across, but even then, you know, I couldn't, I wasn't a very good drawer. I still am not a very good drawer, but when I discovered computer drawings and the ability to make them straight and square and precise, I, I felt an outlet that I could um, communicate with other people all of a sudden in the exact same way. It's incredible how natural you're making that uh, symbiotic relationship between you and the technology yeah. feel when it's so unnatural for that technology to be at your disposal. Yeah. yeah, yes, right. I mean, yes yeah, I think no. trying to define what natural is, though, at this yeah. point, right? Well, humans are still, like, walking around carbon molecules, like all the other life on this planet, so. Yeah. I yeah, think we, it's not that amazing. Drawing started with, like, animal blood on the walls of caves, right? We've got some right over there. Really? On that cliff face over there. Yeah. Well, it's probably only a few hundred years old, but. Uh -huh. Is that on the hike? Behind? No, you need to go on a boat to see it. Yeah. It's uh, on the underhang. Are those real? Cliffs. I thought that that was some kid who did that. It could be, but the petroglyphs around here are apparently authentic. Mm. Yeah, there's several of them around the lake. Hmm. That thing turned out blood again? I think it's uh, Sorry mm -hmm. about that, man. No, it's not. It keeps failing. I don't think it's blood, though. I think it's uh, juice from huckleberry or something. Or cedar juice. I don't know if this is something you don't like talking about, but you're one of the least vocal vegans I've ever met. Well, I'm not truly vegan, actually. So, like, okay. I actually eat um, seafood products. So, vegetarian. I'm still an or? animal murderer of another form. I, just, mm -hmm. I don't eat any farm-based animal things. I don't know why I thought that was the difference between vegetarian and vegan. Is like a vegan. Vegan is no animal products at all. Okay. Honey. So. Pescatarian. I would be considered pescatarian. But you're not very vocal about it. Like you're not, I think vegans and people who are, have dietary constraints have a reputation for being in your face about it. Or have you not ever heard that? Too old for that shit, man. I don't, I don't have anything to accomplish that with anymore. Yeah. I mean, if you're curious, then I'm, I'll gladly share you know, dietary views. But people don't need to have... The problem with righteousness is, is it actually makes it so that your message is intentionally ignored. You've got to be careful. Yeah, that kind of comes back to your skater mentality and seeing the perspective of maybe a little uh, senseless rebellion for the sake of rebellion. 
and understanding how to mitigate that. No, but you have, you have to live by your own moral code. You don't have to share your moral code with other people. That's just your own, your own government. True. But you're still trying to make some big changes for the greater good, in, in, uh, certainly from a technology and shelter perspective. But that could actually be a, um, a very selfish pursuit. It can be totally about self that you want to only do the right thing. And you don't even need to be doing it to measure yourself up against other people. It's because you yourself want to like who you are. Have you ever heard of Ayn Rand? Of course. When you were talking about it earlier, about um, design over function, I thought you were going to bring up the Fountainhead. Because um, Tim is pretty far from a, an Ayn Rand uh, um, follower by any stretch of the imagination. But um, there is, I think, a fine balance between function over... I was thinking uh, The Virtue of Selfishness is a short well, book that you wrote. I don't think I've read that one. It, but there's definitely um, a lot of, of the same mindset you're talking about in, in the, uh, the Howard Rourke character mm -hmm. in, in uh, The Fountainhead. Where, uh, yeah, individuality, individuality doesn't necessarily need to be a public engagement, but then also um, public engagement doesn't necessarily need to be to the benefit of all individuals. So. There's, there's some strong thinking process that went into that. I don't necessarily like how uh, a lot of her thinking has been adopted by a sort of, um, you know, screw everybody who can't hold their own type attitude. Because there's a little bit that goes on around that. And I don't necessarily think that that's what she was uh, trying to set out there. But yeah. yeah, the virtue of selfishness is pretty much the that book she wrote or like pamphlet or. I don't know, it's a short, it's philosophical, it's not like a fictional story, but it just describes how sometimes people will do things for the good of others, but that's still a selfish endeavor because they, it makes them feel good to do good. So it's like, when they donate to charity, sure, they're giving, but they're also getting a sense of warmth, yeah. a sense of contribution, a sense of maybe longevity. Well, at our base code, if you are to look at DNA as being the same thing as code, uh, there's nothing about community in that. It's all about survivalism. And a lot of people think that, that the evolution, the theory about evolution is about what's good for the species, and it's not. It was always about what's good for the individual. What happens is the species had the byproducts by becoming better. So. Yeah, I am resonating strongly with what you're saying right now because I think often about how there's a Venn diagram of the things that are good for you and the things that are good for society. And there's a meeting between those two that um, that's like a very beautiful place. Like, I think automation and construction is one of those places where the people who are contributing to it are building equity in companies that are transforming an industry that can provide ultimately higher value to hopefully everyone. And so through the selfish motivation of having either just an impact on the world, or building a big company, or sharing information. Uh, there's like a greater good. But then there's obviously the flip side of that, which is like the Venn diagram portion where it benefits people and doesn't benefit the greater good. And that's why you get like oil spills and like all these different environmental issues and people who are, are not thinking about that. And so when you can, when you can isolate that segment where they, it's mutually beneficial, mm -hmm. that's where I guess beautiful things happen.
but in the same breath. Nothing's recording here. Right now. <laughs> That's recording. It's such a beautiful speech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the same breath, oh, yeah. um, Ayn Rand is like considered the cornerstone of capitalism. Well, no, I think there's a, a, a large number of modern capitalists who've adopted Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand's writings as being some sort of um, textbook as to how they're supposed to analyze certain things. But she by no means was the first person to have had those thoughts and, and to realize that there's, um, there's strength in the individual. I suppose the alternative. There are people who would say that Napoleon did phenomenal things for his people, and no, I think he gave a shit about those people. But you know, his, what he was doing. His individualistic pursuits had uh, a side effect of benefiting those who were around him. For me personally, I think about that Venn diagram for the sake of, I guess, my sleep at night. <laughs> if I can contribute my energies towards something that's not only good for me but good for society, then maybe I'll sleep better and live longer and be healthier and uh, and those things will give me a leg up so that I can I guess yeah. be better than the rest of society and competition or whatever whatever circumstances but yeah like you're saying it's all I think everything is selfishly motivated even the desire to be selfish well being part of a social structure doesn't make you not individualistic and uh, there are enormous number of species on the planet who their very existence is because they developed social structures that allowed them to work together, but they they only exist to pass on their gene pool because they individually survived whatever it is that, um, that they as a species as a species has gone through. So it's always about the self. On some level, the internet is making us more like ants in that perspective. In like people always theorize that ants have some subtle communication method that goes beyond like words or movements or sight because they are yeah. so limited they have to be near the queen, they are so orchestrated. And now that we have the internet and like a common communication factor, we're as a society becoming less individually focused and more... Yeah, except there's, there's no queen ants in the internet right now, unfortunately. And so you have a whole lot That's of Google. ants who think that they're uh, army ants but they're actually worker ants. Or you have a whole lot of ants who think they're doctor ants instead of being uh, patient ants. And uh, I think that the, um, the notion that somehow or other everybody becoming mini experts in a bunch of things that they know really little about is actually kind of holding things back a bit, sadly. So, yeah. There's some queen ants that think they're worker ants too. And maybe some worker ants that think they're queen ants. I suppose. Let's get very uh, metaphorical. At this yeah, point. I'm a little more technical, <laughs> uh, <than> philosophical myself. <laughs> That's why I brought the beer so that we could kind of divulge past Last some of the technical yeah. stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm not upset about that. <laughs> I do like those. That flavor. That's a good flavor. So. What's the, uh, what's like a, if you were to give a foresight projection of kind of, like you mentioned in Utopia, what does the Utopia, what is the house that 3D printing build looks like? And not just the single house, like the whole, the whole concept brought together in the future. Mm. Well, it serves 
it serves people and community, whether they want it or not, or you know, isolation, or um, it's it's got to serve in the same range of diversity that people are. Hmm. Right? Yeah. People have the highest quality of life possible for the least amount of impacts on yeah. the environment and the surroundings and, and the pain of the others around them. I'd say it's quite constrained right now. Right? You need to have a certain lifestyle to afford a certain structure or residence or whatever. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of constraint in your lifestyle in order to, to have a home or mm -hmm. objects. Hopefully that's going to change, right? Like That'll be something that's serving rather than yeah, get served. It has to be an enabling technology, yeah. not an exclusionary technology. It has to do something that makes it so that the people who are hoping to have better conditions for their living arrangements or whatever it is they're looking to have better arrangements in, that this technology contributes to that. Less people are under anxiety and more people are yeah. like, contributing in a constructive way than in, in a reactionary or a desperate way. Yeah, that is very philosophical, but you know, housing is kind of at the core of all of our security. You know, every single human being needs shelter, and there's are sadly like close to a billion people on, on this planet right now who are pretty close to not having any shelter at all, or if they don't already um, find themselves in a situation where they have no shelter. And robotic construction, I think, can lift everybody out of that state. I have no doubt that it can lift everybody out of the state. I'm maybe a little bit more pessimistic about what government and, uh, you know, will the authorities, powers that be, will allow us to have. So, you know, the construction technology, the printers and stuff will make advantages, uh, advances and make things easier, but then we're also going to see, I think, uh, restrictions, uh, regulations, taxation. Kinda, you know, we're going to make some advances here. Peons have figured out greed yet. Yeah. And they haven't got to control their greed yet, and so they want to get in there their yeah. desires above the, of the needs of others. That's for sure going to go on no yeah. matter what. Yeah, no matter what. So, you know, it's kind of a battle between good and evil. You know, construction technology, printers and stuff is going to enable people and, you know, the other people are going to try to take whatever gains they get away from them. So, Most of the issues you just brought up to me sound regulatory. And it's like the system that exists now from the unions that have been built up and the existing construction, uh, like megalith of an industry um, they've, they're so powerful, and so they have these, there's permitting, there's different municipal standards, and it seems like that regulatory giant is a foe that's going to have to be overcome. Well, I mean, you satisfy them, and then they, they put new, and then they put new implications, yeah. or new restrictions on, right? So, you know, it's our responsibility to turn them into participants. Yeah. Like you say, maybe they start out as a foe, but they're foe, um, the reason why they'd be a foe is based on ignorance. It seems like a lot of the narrative is around fitting into existing standards. And the sad part is that if you have to fit into a standard, then there's some efficiency you're probably leaving on the table. That's a good, <laughs> fair, fair point, I'd say. Yep. If there's a number on it, I'd say it's like in the middle somewhere, like half or something, because, yeah. 
But again, it's an ignorance thing. And that's why we count on TU Eindhoven, we count on Saxion, we count on the University of Sherbrooke, soccer College here. These schools will teach their kids to challenge the status quo at the regulatory level, through science, and eventually the, um, the studies will exist that will make it impossible for the governing bodies or the regulatory bodies to uh, not acknowledge these advancements that have been made. You know, because as much as everybody likes to um, to make place for you know the, the faith or the belief in things, at the end of the day, it's always the science and the math that allows for regulatory bodies to allow things to keep moving forward. And so that's why the Schools that have digital manufacturing programs are actually going to be the ones that lead the charge for companies like ours to succeed. Yeah, that's fair. Just a little disheartening because I imagine some of those regulatory organizations are going to want to see, I guess, time-proven studies. So that could take decades before they're really comfortable with uh, some of the structural calculations, potentially. Time's I, relative, though. Like yeah. Some of those time studies will be months, some will be years. We wrote a quote for a house that we were going to build for a family here this year, and uh, we had to write into that quote what we thought was a fair 20-year warranty on our work. It's pretty hard to write a 20-year warranty out for something that's only existed for three years. But you know, we committed to it because we have we have to have the confidence that if if a problem arises that we haven't thought of yet, we have the adequate brain power in our organization to overcome that and make that client satisfied with whatever it is that they um, expected from us on knowledge that wasn't even achieved anywhere yet. So, I mean, how much can you simulate time? Can you take a printed concrete block and freeze it, thaw it, freeze it, thaw it, freeze it, thaw it, 100 times, and that gives you the equivalent of a certain... That answers a very specific question, but... It's not the same freeze, question. Freeze, thaw for two years, Weathering. and have a 16-year-old kid practice... Um, learning how to pitch curveballs against it for a year, and then uh, the somebody rain. backing their RV into it like two years after that. And like, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in a building structure that you can't necessarily yeah. create simulations for. So let's say any of the examples you just brought up causes some kind of cosmetic damage in the, in the printed concrete. How do you fix it? Well, cosmetics, honestly, cosmetics is a conversation. Let's say it's a hole. Cosmetic is about opinion. Cosmetic Let's say it's a Superman throw, yeah. and there's a baseball-sized hole now straight through yeah. the wall. Well, in our case, we would try to Do make we need it to look it? as it looked before. Did it fail because of something that should or shouldn't have been happening? But at the end of the day, um, from a construction standpoint, our responsibility is structural integrity, so that whatever condition that thing is in, whether it is in some form of decay or abuse, that nobody is at risk for that state that it found itself in. So the types of warranties or guarantees that you could offer in something like this would be that you know these sort of known activities that should have existed around the normal use case of a house has not put anybody in that house at risk because so, of the construction strategy we chose for 3D printing or hybrid 3D printing or something else. Relatively, how much easier would it be to fix uh, or how much more difficult is it to fix a hole in a concrete wall than like a fist-sized hole in drywall or something? That would be like a $10 quick repair. Much more difficult? It depends it's if you want to be able to punch a hole there again. <laughs> Do you want to be able to actually back to the original structure I mean, you could, you could plaster it. Because a drywall or hole you could use concrete. isn't as good as it was mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. 
So it's what state you want to return to. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There we go. Yeah, what do you want to do? Do you want to make it look as original? Do you want to uh, patch it to stop the airflow? Do you want to I think patching it to stop the airflow is like the minimum standard. That's pretty easy. Anything yeah. above that is more, you need a sculptor. You know what the hardest part would be, in all honesty? Trying to make it look like the really cool bead lines that were there yeah. when we printed it the first time. Very difficult to replicate. But if people want to go and cover up all these really nice cool prints with plaster, then it's super easy. I think they will want to cover up the cool prints and plaster yeah. just for uh, just for normalcy's sake. I think people will just want flat, plain walls. Yeah, I think, um, oh, and it's really cool to look at right now and interesting, but it's going to look like rec room, exciting rec room walls. Yeah, hopefully so maybe the exterior at least can stay raw. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I mean, it's also a dust trap too, there, right? There's there will be different schools of thought. Yeah, there's there'll tons, be different schools yeah. of thought. So the plastering that we see now, it's very common in, say, like Greek structure or whatever, um, it wasn't done because they were trying to make it look nicer, it was a treatment, right? So sometimes what's mm -hmm. functional becomes the thing that people want. Like, you look across that street, you've got like a red brick over there. I, I think it's pretty easy to say that that's not the most attractive color that people want in things, but we're totally comfortable accepting red bricks all over the place because that was the material of choice that made it so that a brick could exist. And now when people see a brick that's white or gray or something else, they're like, oh, that's ugly. I don't want that fake looking yeah. brick. Yeah, I personally else. really like red brick. But you don't know why it's red. Like why it's the red you like. I mean, you, you can know why the brick itself is red, but you can't really put your finger on why it is. That thing that you feel comfortable with is what you like the most. I think 3D printed walls, maybe not in our lifetime, may be this thing where people are like, oh man, can you believe all these people covered their 3D printed walls with plaster? Just like I'm sure underneath carpets all over the world, there's this hardwood beautiful floors. hardwood floor that people are like, mind-boggling. How can you guys do this yeah. to it? Because for them, hardwood was cheap. And 3D printing might seem cheap to people for a while, but at some point, you know, they're going to see like, hey, this is like, this is a genuine 3D printed house. This is not like one of those yeah. fake, you know, and people will make fake 3D printed look things on things. And just like fake carbon fiber. How much of that stuff have we had to endure over the last 10 years? Very true. You know, silk screen or um, inkjet printed carbon fiber parts. It's a cool analogy to make between hardwood floors that we covered up and 3D printed walls that are uh, being covered up. I, it would be very cool to see that ultimately come to fruition. Uh, see how long it takes. Everything yeah. always comes in and out of the... you got to come back here when you're 124 and peel off the plaster of the Fibonacci house and make, look, this is like the original print underneath here. I never thought people would want to see the rec room siding again. <laughs> <laughs> what is this rec room siding? Right? It's like a veneered wood product with line, vertical lines in it. It almost looks like um, board and bat style. You don't remember that? Don't remember it's, that? it's probably uh, 3 16 or 1 quarter, like a 6 mil thick plywood with a cedar finish on it, with dark lines. Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember... Uh, masonite. <laughs> it was made out of masonite, and then I had like a faux wood cover to it. Super flexible. You could hit it with a soccer ball. Was there was a big, like, knotty pine uh, movement going on for a long time, but is that different? It's not like no, knotty that pine. that was retro. The knotty pine thing was retro. Yeah, I'm having a hard time picturing a rec room 
I'll send you a link after some yeah. pictures and you can uh, yeah. show the viewers. Night, a lot of houses in 1980 kind of, yeah. yeah, printed concrete certainly dynamic in its adaptability. Like it's because of its form, it holds whatever you stick on it well, right? It can. Sure. But it does not. It's got a lot of mechanical uh, interface. surface yeah. interface coordination. Well, I don't know what you mean by the word whatever. I think put ceramic tiles on 3D oh. print is going to be kind of annoying. You're going to use a lot of adhesive to fill unnecessary cracks. But putting plaster, obviously, they're very easy going. Like you said, there's a lot of interlock elements there. It's definitely not going to hold wallpaper. It's going to be something to get. It's going to get be fun to see sprayed on After you it, though, you could easily wallpaper it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But that's that. Do people still do wallpaper? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Well, it'll come back. Or it'll come back. <laughs> people have wallpaper that's like, you know, unique piece to the whole thing. Right. Well, at this point, how many employees does Trenta have total? put out a guess of where you might be two years from now. We think we're going to have about 300 employees. 300 in two years. Yeah. So I guess a big challenge that you're facing, you mentioned this earlier, is Jim, you're the primary print operator generally in the, in the At this facility. Location. So how do you get 100 people that have your level of expertise with the printer? Uh, I don't think we need that many, need but uh, uh, we need some. Yeah, how, what's the best way to replicate the expertise you've developed? I don't think it'll ever be exactly replicated. We're going to have people with other strong and weak points. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Jim you know, runs the machinery on. from the perspective of a developer. It's very different from somebody who's running a machine from the perspective of an operator. So I actually think that there will, I think I estimated from my last business model that we would need something like between 60 and 75 operators about three years from now. In order to service what kind of uh, locality? Uh, that would be global rollouts, but it would be at that point somewhere between 40 and 50% of our sales would be printing services only. So we'll have um, a large component, of course, it's always machinery sales, but as this is early adoption, we know that the very large construction companies who are not ready to jump in <coughs> will definitely need to outsource some printing services because it's going to become obvious to them that there's certain things that they should be doing 3D printing now because the, the market is, is proving very quickly that doing things through conventional methods is not competitive with 3D printing anymore. So they will require companies like ours or 3D Vinci in Dubai or other companies who are set up to offer printing as a service uh, to meet some of their Printing, um, I see landscape really architecture. Uh, yeah, landscape is another huge one. But the actual development of the company, like you know, our company founding team is six guys. Um, actually, we're, we're pretty excited to announce that we have a new CTO in the organization. It's a longtime business partner of mine named Mark Rogtai, who has been kind of under contract to work for the wind energy company that he and I used to be uh, owners of before we sold it. And as of December this year, he's going to be back working with us again. We're really excited. Mark. 
So we're really excited about that. So when you said you were fired, you weren't really fired. You were bought out of your last... Uh... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a close thing, so I don't really get into it. There's actually some really wonderful people in that organization, but I was supposed to stay on as long as Mark was, and the, um, the owner of... Or no, sorry. The CEO of that company is really, one of the smartest people I've ever met. His name is Rudolph Adorn from uh, Gert, and Company that, that uh, bought Marks and my for the company. And I think he recognized that my personality type is not going to sit so well in this sort of hierarchy um, uh, corporate structure. And uh, that some of my fast opinions were maybe not as refined before going out to the rest of the organization. It's pretty typical after an acquisition to, to replace yeah. the leadership so that you can kind of reestablish the, uh, the new leadership. I guess so, but it was more along the lines of, I guess I didn't, um, I didn't hold back my criticisms of things that I thought were affecting the well-being of my former employees. And they felt that, um, you know, it's not really my place to be Concerning myself with things that I'm not actually directly responsible for. After they, 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 they actually gave me some parameters of what my job role was, and I kept like looking over the fence into these other areas because I had like a, a lot of uh, love for the people who I built that company up with, and I didn't want to see the promises that I had made to them about what kind of work life they were going to have get taken away from them because the new management had a different direction than they wanted the company to go in. So, to me, yeah. that sounds less like a firing and more like a conscious choice you made about how you want to operate, potentially against the uh, what they yeah. were okay. So we use, the, we use the term firing kind of loosely because it's a, it's a little bit comical, but it was a, a basically an agreement to go separate ways. That can be the title, How Ian Got Fired. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, um, I didn't want to leave when they asked me to leave, so from that standpoint, it did feel like a, a firing because... I wanted to keep protecting the people. But I'm you didn't know that you were making decisions a little contrary to what the new ownership uh, was after. Um, I thought that I could prove to them that their doubts were wrong. So I wasn't actually trying to go against them per se. I was trying to show them that there's this actually better result than they suspected was achievable. Yeah. And that made me step outside of my bounds. Rebellion with the intention for being helpful. Well, well obviously, you know. That's always in, the intention. If you're in a company, you're trying to create profit. Like, for all of the elements around, like, what our moral code is and what our objectives are and our mission statement are, is your company still has to generate profit that can be shared by those who have made the investment or who've loaned to that organization in order for that organization to exist. So, everything I did in work prior to that company being uh, purchased, and other companies has always had profit at the sort of core as to why this decision is getting made. It's not always obvious to people who don't look at the whole picture, and they're only just sort of seeing like their individual um, perspective of the roles they're on, but yeah, com companies have to make money. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the reason why you guys are still around today. Without profitability, you can't continue any operation. It was, it was great to get Ian early. <laughs> I was quite happy to get Ian's uh, undivided attention earlier than anticipated. Uh, unfortunately, we've had to wait this long for Marks. Yeah, yeah. but it's going to be awesome when he shows up. He's the most brilliant technical mind I've ever met. Like, without a doubt. Like, I've met some really smart people over the years. This guy can see inside mechanisms. He can see inside 
the way things function in ways that I just... It's got yeah. insight. Yeah. yeah. Intuition. Intuition. All and, and insight. You know, it's, yeah. it's all backed with the experience. And Studies and... But there's, there's, there's something special about it. You know, like, there's, he has this technique of sitting and listening and watching. And even if he knows so much better than everyone else who's talking in the room, he just lets them run their yeah. And then he sticks his finger up and he's like, okay. You guys. Here's the point we need to make. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It can be super disheartening at times. Because, uh, Beyond just the, <laughs> the actual brilliance behind it, that... that uh, presentation method of being super quiet and then waiting to speak up and having like an omniscient yeah. point which is it's very powerful yeah. for him. Is he kind of the traditional introverted engineering mind, would you say? Uh, introvert, I wouldn't say is his thing, no. No, he's actually it's quite, quite outspoken yeah. and he's, he's, he wants to be heard. When it's Calculated, heard. reserved. Yeah, he thinks, okay, we're talking about Mark as a personality here, which should be careful. <laughs> yeah. But I think he's always a little bit suspicious that people are outside of their elements, which has been probably horrible for him for having me as a partner for 20 years, because I'm always right at the edge of my Just comfort level. <laughs> Whereas he likes to function in that like sure. very comfort level, you know, where, where he knows entirely what's going on around him. And um, even then waits to get all the information. Yep. Yeah, even waits. But um, really what it boils down to is like the machines he designs and conceptualizes and develops end up working better than almost everything that is out, out there doing the same thing, and he does it for less money, and he does it for lower weight, and he does it for longer, uh, um, like robustness before it falls apart, and, and that's just like the, the in, in custom automation and you know 3D printing is basically the off-the-shelf automation at some point. Um, he's like got, he's like the full package. So when he, his first day off his uh, old job, the company you guys sold, First day with Twenta, what's his, uh, what's your task for him? Pump, I think, it's the first thing. You know, everybody in the 3D printing world right now is functioning on modifications of pumps that existed for other applications, and Twenta will have the greatest 3D printing pump that ever existed. So will that be something you sell to other companies? Yep, yep. Yeah, Only Vertigo can have a pump, yeah. and Cobot can have a pump, and all of our supposed competition will be buying their pumps from us their products much easier to sell to their clients. We're I was going to mention earlier when you were talking about the nozzle, it seems like the, the nozzle is like just kind of an extension of the pump and the real magic is all happening in the pump and you had the intern it's developing the sensor. Yeah, it's it's everybody's true. working together. Yep. One, one failure and you can see it. Yep. A, a lot of variables. The complexity behind the six axis robotic arm has kind of been well discovered. Where and like there's existing solutions you just have to find plug in fine tuning motion control and the the pump that's more of uh, new grounds or uh, well, I mean there's existing technology that's being repurposed so it's quite uh, convenient to go ahead and use it when you're developing your nozzle when you're learning your software programs and all that other kind of stuff. So, you know, kind of uh, get to a point where you start noticing the uh, idiosyncrasies of each pump or unit or whatever. 
and what you need. So, to you know, it's, yeah, I, I, like I, I've probably mentioned it five or ten times already. I'm watching water content, right? So that's one of the big factors. And, uh, printing, it affects everything. So it's a very uh, prominent factor to keep our eyes on and control. Yeah, one of the few, um, like, points of waste in the process seems to be perfecting the water content of the material before you start to print. Yes. So we'll dump, uh, I mean, we won't dump, we'll utilize it wherever we can. Uh, infilling formwork or, you know, making molds, shoring up our yard, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, relatively it's a small amount. It's like a, a couple of five-gallon buckets at most. Yep, but, you know, what happens every print? So if we do one print or five prints in the session, we're still wasting. What is that shape supposed to be? It's it looks dip. slightly phallic. Yeah, it's a reservoir tip. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's a wall connector. It's a reservoir tip. <laughs> Protection. No, we're, we're experimenting with some different ways to interface through cast components. The idea was that we could cut here, and then this tip would get as far as in there. Mm -hmm. So it's adequately looped. This is actually a four-way piece. You need four of these to uh, complete the circle. So it's a potential. That's almost a outhouse length, though. This is almost small for outhouse. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a wall structure. Yeah. A company in Dubai wants us to do a bunch of prefab buildings for them for very fast deployment. So we want them to basically stand up together on their own. So if somebody else has to come later to mortar them together or whatever, then can take a bit of wind and sun and still hang out in their place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the design implications are like unimaginably massive and the, the uh, it's stuff like that that's going to be symbiotically uh, structured together, I guess, modularly, that's going to demonstrate to people the applications of the 3D printing and that. And it also lets you test things and it lets you make a quick uh, concept of something without it being a huge expense to develop the technology to make that form. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, different design strategies and techniques that have not been considered for probably hundreds of years even, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, the flow of water and uh, uh, sort of the industrial revolution where you can do things over and over again, kind of constrain what you can do. Uh, now we're going back to it again when Things can be unique again. It needs a reconsideration of first principles of the, yeah. I guess, you really need the most talented and creative architects to have a firm grasp of the capabilities of printed concrete so that they can make designs that can maximize the yeah. nuance. Yeah. Talented or well-educated. Those are interchangeable. Yeah, such so different. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of, I'm in awe of the talented, of course, but they've kind of had it easy, haven't they, don't you think? The well-educated are the ones who've actually, you know, put in the hard time. <laughs> <laughs> the talented are just cruising They just along. show up, and everybody yeah, likes what they do. Interesting way to put Is it. the talented, true. <laughs> so does Jim fall under the talented or the well-educated? I think Tim falls, Jim falls under the bright category. That's another category. That's another category. Because if you're bright, you know when you're not talented. 
is a lot of people who are not talented who think they are. <laughs> and the uh, well-educated can sometimes not have a really good grasp on um, real world practicality. Yeah, practicality. So, yeah. I, th I should say well-educated standpoint of like life experience education as well as conventional. Yeah, there's like a third factor in there that was misleading me is like maybe street smarts versus mm -hmm. talent versus well I mean which is like you know neither Jim or I have any post secondary education so everything we learn is from hanging around with people like Tim and Mark and Jonathan and guys who yeah have had the generosity to take time to bring us up to understandings that they took the time to go and study yeah it's a, it's a compliment that they'll yeah help us yeah. Mm. no we, we wouldn't but we're anywhere where we are right now if it wasn't for the you know, help of people who want us to understand something that we don't understand. Yeah. yeah, I've got the feeling I want to pay it forward too. You know, we have some people on staff that yeah. are younger and they're learning and I'm realizing, hey, I know how to do this, I know how to do that, and they're asking. How to, yeah. you know, and I'm happy to. Mentorship's huge. Yeah. Huge. I think actually it's a, a, we talk about moral obligations. I think everybody should be doing some form of mentorship in some form or another. And I've got like a lot of guys like Ali, who's uh, one of the guys we met out there, who's out there doing some 3D printing work, he's doing some construction work. Um, I've known him since he had just turned 15 years old. We've been hanging around trying to figure out how to make skateboards with the CNC machine. And, you know, and it's, it's really awesome to watch where he went from, from just sort of like curiosity to now he's developing his own ideas about how things can be done. And through mentorship that he was able to find a path of creating his own education. It's cool how you guys take some of your employees that were hired for various roles and train them into kind of more complex positions. Like some employees were hired mostly for like a labor position or uh, different tasks, and yet at this point they're working on kind of high-level robotics and on working on robotic arms. Working on, yeah. Uh, I saw Jared doing some welding the other day. So there's like a yeah, huge variety. Yeah, that, but no, yeah, that's. It's kind of cool, actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. People should be, one, allowed to work in the field they feel most confident in. Of course, that's not always applicable. Um, and I think that what we've got going is a, an environment where people are allowed to sort of play in domains that might be outside of their um, comfort level because, you know, they're really killing it on the, like, the crappy stuff. You know, they, they do grunt in front of that bag of blade of creek material with the shovel and the shovel, yeah. pounding the um, pounding the, the, the auger full of the material that can go through the cleaning up the pump. No. Yep. Yeah, it's like <laughs> there's a lot of lousy jobs out there. So by giving them non lousy jobs to go along with that stuff, yeah. they're excited to see the company move forward and succeed as well. Yeah, I mean, you make it kind of seem like it's. Um, super intentional it seems almost more serendipitous in that like you have these guys there they're taking a job they may not expect it to be super technical and then there's just a task where okay there's this technical problem Ian's got to do this task Jim is busy with this task this guy happens to be right here so now he has exposure to this like yeah. realm. Well, but let's let's be fair like everybody who shows up for a job with us told immediately this is a highly technological um, workspace. There's going to be a bunch of things going on around that are essential that um, may not be presented as such, like, you know, 
communication wires that are laid across sharp steel grates and like there's a bunch of chaos going on around there and you have to be conscientious that even if you're just here to do labor there's some really like um, tight variables work that's going on around you that can't really be mucked with so please learn what these things are and how they are affecting the, the quality the of what we're trying to picture, do the overall yeah. picture and get engaged and if you see that even Jim who's absolutely knows that it's like wrong for a particular wire to be run in a certain direction because it's going to get cut or rolled over by somebody with a forklift or something that could cause the printer to stop working. That they're supposed to step in and say, "Hey, like, you know, yeah. that doesn't look right, Jim." And Jim will be like, "Oh, of course, can you jump on that for me?" So it's kind of like a a, a call to be engaged. Yeah. Just don't come here expecting that you can just do this one thing and put your earphones on and, and think about chicks while you're working all day and actually like see what's going on around you. And, there's something that, that um, you can like, contribute or participate in. Yeah. Like, you'll have the. You're not going to get in trouble for for asking dumb questions, whether or not like what they see should um, should stay the way it is or not. You know. That earphones one is a. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but it's definitely something that's dividing in the workforce. Of, uh, I've certainly had jobs where I've had earphones in and been. Uh, sometimes recommended for it. Most of the time, it's kind of just like let go. But maybe they're. I've sensed resentment for having earphones in. <laughs> well, we, we have walk with the kids. Actually. <laughs> we, we had walk-ins when we were kids growing up, too. It's not actually a generational thing. It's an age thing. And what it has to do with is, is when you have your earphones in, you're actually like um, denying yourself a chance to participate in something bigger yeah. than what it is you're yeah. doing immediately around you. Yeah. The root of the frustration is when I have my headphones in and somebody wants me to do something and they say, hey, Jared, and I can't hear them. That's a well, big problem in the workforce. If you're yeah, like, the whole benefit of being face-to-face -face in person in an office is the value of being able to say, hey, to someone's face and like, yeah, have that conversation. Respond, yeah. Pay attention, be engaged. Well, well that's part of it. But there's the other side. It's like, you know, Ellie can be over there working on a pillicum and all he's got to do is tighten bolts. And man, he's got like 150 bolts he's got to tighten today. It's a pretty monotonous thing. But if he's sitting there and he's listening to, to music and Jim and I are in the same room and he and I are talking about like the finer details of motion control or something, he's not actually absorbing any of that conversation because he's listening to some... But to yeah, play exactly. devil's advocate, you do have a noisy facility yeah. and a lot of those noises are like equipment noises that are the same droning noise and I've noticed a lot of people have the AirPods that yeah. just cancel out the noise. So maybe there's a added value to but being But that noise to... is information. And Jim and I, who at one point were in our skateboard company, were two employees, and our CNC could be running 50 feet away from us. And we'd be working away, doing CAD, or doing marketing, or something in the office, and all of a sudden we'd hear the machine go for like, oh shit, and we'd jump up and we'd run over because we could hear that that was a symptom of something that well, wasn't supposed to be going on. can we innovate our way out of this problem so that you get the benefits of the noise cancellation and also you mitigate the issue? Like maybe you can have a buzzer. Yes, there we go, an interrupt. So whenever yeah. I want to talk to them, I can interrupt their music. Give them some kind of annoying <laughs> sound. But, that, but that's hey, intentional. Jared, instead of yelling, hey Jared, I can yell. But that's intentional can, communication only. It's yeah. still allows for them to yeah. not be completely engaged with yeah, this round. But isn't, it, isn't some of your best work completed in a flow state when you're only focused on the single task at hand instead yep. of the True. world Sometimes. around you? Yep. 
Yeah. Sometimes you don't want the interruption, right? Yeah. You want to stay focused on what you're doing to get it done. But uh, around our shop, there's a lot of things happening yep. all the time. Uh, Whatever, we, we let them decide when that time is, honestly. You know, they don't have to keep the earpods out, and uh, we don't um, tell them that they should put them in. Like, it's a, you know, they're, or take them out. You they're, they're, they're governing anywhere. themselves right now. Yeah, they're governing earpods, themselves. Yeah. So, well, we uh, did talk about maybe only having one ear in, yeah. and there's like a bunch of people in the room, and there's some bed That sounds a little in. like a grandpa policy. <laughs> Like grandpa policy? Well, well because, because like, you want to be facilitating, but you don't necessarily want to um, uh, like make it so that you're... What does that do if you cancel all the noise coming from one ear and then you hear it from the other ear? I don't know. I think the noise canceling is part of the value. You're not going to get in trouble for uh, causing problems. That's <laughs> psychological problems. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Focus is a funny thing. It's yeah. one of these things that we discussed for generations and generations. And, um, you know, there's a, actually a lot of literature out there that says that people should be great multitaskers, but there's also even more evidence that shows that multitasking is actually really horrible behavior, and that only people who have sort of like the, the chemical imbalance of like what's considered to be um, attention deficiency, hyperactivity disorder, those are the only people who should really be allowed to work in um, multitasking roles, because they're they develop the skill sets over the years, or just whatever their chemistry allows well, are them. Are you considering the headphones those things to be multitasking? No, what I'm saying is that people who need to focus sometimes need to have their their environment prepared for them so that they're allowed to focus. But there's a lot of push, like the, the highly successful notions that you can do this, and you can be doing emails, or you're talking on the phone, and, and doing all of these um, um, multiple processes at the same time, and they're learning that basically means that none of those things are done very well at all. Yeah. And then if you just stop and do this one, and then move on to that one, and then move on to that one, most people actually get much better results if they just did one thing at a time. But it's not trendy. It's not like, it's not revered to be a, a single tasker. Multitasking is like this kind of um, put on a pedestal sort of uh, mindset. So, um, and again, then there's other people who like, you know, they only function in some sort of introverted uh, manner. So people who are like on the scale of, um, you know, they, they use the term spectrum for Asperger's or autism, and they can have some phenomenal breakthroughs on things, but like if the temperature of the room is off, or if there's like, like some sort of grating noise in the corner or whatever, they don't get to be able to go down that far of their thinking process in order to be able to have those, uh, those insights. And so, you know, like as an employer and as a company with multiple people, we try really hard to let people know who they are and create the work environment around themselves so that they feel like they can do the most that they can accomplish on any given task. So whatever, you can push and shove a little bit here and there and say, hey, please, you know, if it's print day and there's six of us and we're running around, can you take one of your ear pods out? But if we don't need them to be doing something and they want to shove them both in, then yeah, that's totally fine. But is this a human resources or is this a philosophical conversation? Hard to say. Yeah, at a certain level, um, entrepreneurship at the right scale always comes down to human resources um, because it takes teamwork to achieve certain size goals. Yeah. And any teamwork, the biggest problem will sometimes be people. I had this really awesome um, professional assistant that I hired for a summer, and she ended up being like one of the smartest people I've ever met. And um, she's gone on to like be a manager of another company, 
and she could not stand the term human resources. Said, How can you put the word resource behind the word human? And um, yeah, did you ever meet Callie? Callie Racine? She's got this yeah, like amazing mind, and that was one of the things that just really triggered her. Which is super individualistic person. She understands like the, the, the sense of self and the sense of contribution, and that anyone could be referred to as a resource was something that like totally like dehumanizing. Like, yeah, it hurt her just to hear it. But then we have another guy on our team, Armand, who worked in, in human resources basically his entire career, and he had this amazing ability to identify how people want to have like a work and life balance. And that he was able to teach them to want to be resourceful or to be, you know, like uh, purely in, in a contribution mindset when they were in their engagement for employment that um, they were also able to excel. So like, there's so many different ways you can look at how um, like a company moves forward with the people that are involved in that company. And, and there's not like right and wrong ways of doing things um, with exceptions of maybe like you know, doing something that you knowingly is uh, a form of exploitation or are you just using dishonesty or deceit to get them to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. If you're going to remove that from the, um, the, the relationship you have with your staff, then whether they're a human resource and they're being resourceful, or they're being an individual and they're allowing their personality to drive their contribution, um, both ways or everywhere in between can somehow make the company better and go somewhere that those people want to work for. It's an infinitely complex scenario. It is, because there's no two humans alike. We can make two robots alike, though. And they probably outperform most humans. <laughs> two prints alike. There's no two prints alike. Uh-oh. Yet. Huh? Yet. That's yet. New Zealander for yet. Oh, yet. Yeah. Yeah. There will always be differences. It's Read nice to think about two printers, or two prints being the same. Being able to Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Always Especially be, uh, regionally, two you know, different we, spaces. We know that's possible. I mean, that's, that was the whole yeah. motivation of getting to see it. Well, it's been a pleasure. I guess we can close it out like this. Yeah, it's been fun, man. We yeah. have, we've been glad to have you here. Yeah, it's been good having you We're here. We're actually right really stoked we popped your cherry on getting to see live 3D printing. Yeah, really excited. Like, excited me that, too. Yeah. <laughs> we thought that you are going to come here and be like, Better. You think <laughs> I would put all this effort into like getting to the position where you guys are willing to have me come here and then not even appreciate it when I get here? <laughs> well, it would have been this. It could have been that, like you've seen much better accomplishments than what we've we've done so far. So I really don't think that there are much better accomplishments than what you guys have done so far. I think that there's. A, I think you guys are right on the cutting edge, and I don't think there's a, anything technologically far more advanced than what you have. I think if there are places where companies have kind of like found advantages, it's in nuanced spaces, and it's in kind of like detail-oriented stuff as opposed to big picture mechanics. Um, yeah, I talked to this guy, Wessel van Berendonk from Studio Rap, Rap Technologies. He also is kind of agnostic towards the different companies in the space, and I asked him, which company do you think is like leading 3D printed concrete? 
he wasn't able to wasn't able to put his name like name Big one that was necessarily largely in front of the other companies. And I feel kind of the same way. It's, um, you guys are definitely taking a unique perspective, and uh, you do a lot of customization on the technology that you have. And so, like the other companies, there's like you found your lane in uh, experimentation and customization, maybe. Well, we want to change the right? industry. Yeah. As much as we want to change ourselves, we actually want to have an impact on the whole industry. You know, we we think that we can make Cobot sell better machines to their clients, and we think we can make X3 sell better machines to their clients. So, yeah. We don't want anyone in the industry to see us as a threat. We want everybody in the industry to see us as being the company that is helping to bring everybody up. Yeah, there's definitely an advantage to the entire industry moving forward. It's you know it's so small right now that everybody helping any contributions are beneficial. Everybody, you know. So. Yeah, certainly. Hopefully, more people can uh, appreciate that mindset of camaraderie. It's so early right now. Like I say, a secret today is not a secret tomorrow. You know, so. The more we share, the more we have shared with us, presumably. We all move forward. So, uh, and that's why we're here sharing this conversation. <laughs> There's a lot to be done, yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Well, I look Thanks, forward Eric. to our next podcast.